This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Welcome back to another episode of 50 Miles Per Hour and something a little different today. We're basically a third of the way through our deep dive into the making of speed at this point. We've got the project set up at Fox. We've got our director. We've filled out our key roles. Production has started, and that's going to be the next phase of this podcast. But before we turn that corner into stories of principal photography, I thought we'd take a breather here this week with author and journalist Nick Desemlian. Nick is the editor of Empire, the world's biggest movie magazine. He's also written for Rolling Stone, Stuff, and Time Out. More to the point, he is the author of a recent book that you have to get your hands on if you haven't already. It's called The Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops, and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage. And it charts the rise and stall of golden era action heroes like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, and Jackie Chan. Nick, did I get all of them? You got them all. You got them all. Like Pokemon. I'm looking over at the cover and making sure I got them all. Uh, first of all, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on the bus. <laughs> awesome. Well done. Uh, you know, we're obviously focused around here on the story behind one movie, but I wanted to have you on because uh, it is a film that clearly comes in the wake of the period that you've just exhaustively documented in this book. And it's also in some ways part of a rebuke to that period as a new decade in action cinema took hold. And I have to confess, as I was reading the book, I was sort of clenching, like waiting for the part where speed would be lumped into some list of pretenders or something. And you never really went there. Like you certainly could have in the section where you're detailing the rise of diehard knockoffs. But I don't think the word speed is to be found in the entire book. (laughs) You do mention Keanu Reeves as part of a new wave of action heroes, though. Um, And, you know, I guess I just feel like the film is a bit of a stepchild in this landscape, you know, which is part of why I'm doing this. I want to try and firm up its place in the canon with all these movies you've just written about. So before we get to that, let's just start uh, with your book and and start at the beginning, because I'm always curious where in the process that it becomes evident that there's a story to tell. Uh, When did you know you wanted to sort of immerse yourself in a deep dive into 80s and early 90s action cinema? And was there a certain story or an element that made you say, yeah, there's there's a book in this? Well, I've, I've loved these movies. Uh, well, not all of them, but I've loved a lot of these action movies since as long as I can remember. I grew up on, you know, Cliffhanger. I remember seeing Total Recall hiding behind the couch while my brother was watching it. I was way too young. And um, yeah, then I started working at Empire and just seemed to happen naturally that I was meeting these guys and interviewing them. I got to go to Austin, Texas and spend a weekend with Chuck Norris, which was bizarre as you'd expect, but, but cool. That's the, still the only interview I've ever done where, uh, the star asked to pray before the interview. Um, wow. 
I got to go to uh, Shanghai and hang out with Jackie Chan and then I interviewed Van Damme and Seagal um, and Lundgren on the phone. I've met Arnie a few times. So it all had all these experiences. And um, yeah, it's, I think it's just a fascinating period of Hollywood history. It's so excessive. I mean, the 80s was excessive. I've written a book on comedy as well of that period, but this just felt like the natural place to go if you are telling outrageous stories about outrageous people because these guys were all competing, feuding, trying to outdo each other, and these movies just kind of got out of control. I kind of think Speed is almost a response to how excessive these movies are, because it's so boiled down and tight and disciplined. But I think when you were going into the 90s, everything was just getting really big and bloated and expensive, which I think is partly why people love Speed, because it's so refreshing, so stripped back. Yeah. You're reminding me I forgot to pray at the start of this um, interview. <laughs> Still to, time. Uh, maybe, maybe I can edit that in later on. But no, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I found it interesting, first of all, the way their lives intersect, uh, their stories intersect or overlap. Van Damme and Chuck Norris, uh, Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren. Van Damme seems like the one that I'd want to hang out with, by the way, uh, the most. I don't know why. He just seems like life is fun to him or something. I don't know. Uh, you know, Jackie Chan looking up to Sylvester Stallone and vice versa, obviously Sly and Arnold's rivalry, Van Damme and Seagal's rivalry. I got my money on Van Damme on that one. Um, but I, I thought that was interesting. We all, we all knew some of that, but did some of that like reveal itself to you as you were writing? Yeah, that was really the joy of writing the book. I mean, everyone knows about Stallone and Schwarzenegger and, and them having that feud and, you know, Arnold tricking Stallone into doing Stop on My Mumble Shoot and them trying to have like the their combat knife in each movie has to be slightly larger than the knife that the other guy had in their last movie. I mean, it gets so petty, which is part of the hilarity of it all. Um, but no, the joy was in writing. It was discovering that stuff, discovering that, um, you know, I, I, I introduced Chuck Norris and Jackie Chan in the same chapter. But when I started writing that chapter, I didn't realize that they actually crossed paths and they were at this award show in China and... Chuck didn't understand Chinese, so Jackie was kind of translating for him. And, you know, there were so many little connections. And um, in the case of Seagal, just the the common thing is just him, you know, dissing these guys in various interviews and just being horrible to them all. There was stuff that I didn't get into the book. There was a a good story about Chuck and Seagal having a kind of face-off in an underground car park, which I didn't manage to fit in. Um, But uh, What was that like? More detail there? Well, I was I, I did an interview with sadly uh, quite a few of the people I interviewed for the book have passed away since I since I spoke to them, including Ivan Reitman and Ed Pressman. Um, but I spoke to Robert Wall, aka Bob Wall, who um, fights Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon, and was a really good friend of Chuck Norris. They were like business partners together, and that interview was probably the most eyebrow raising one that I did. It was like a three hour hang on. Uh, hang on by your fingernails kind of situation where he was telling me these absolutely crazy stories, um, including like the fact he rang up Sagao at his dojo and offered to like basically said he was going to shoot him with a sniper rifle and just all this crazy <laughs> stuff. Like, but um, yeah, no, he t- he told me that uh, he and Chuck were in a underground car park and they got into like almost a physical confrontation with Sagao when they met him because Sagao was shit talking Chuck Norris all the time in in papers. Um, But there was a lot of that stuff going on. But yeah, it was great just finding, you know, um, after Die Hard came out, um, uh, Jim Thomas, the the writer of Predator, told me that um, he ran into Arnie in a restaurant and Arnie yelled across the restaurant, 
you know why you're never going to be an action hero, Bruce, toothpick arms. <laughs> and it was like, so those little stories of them encountering each other out in the wild and kind of making fun of each other or, you know, it being more serious than that. But that, that was, that was definitely part of the joy of the whole thing. Yeah. Bob Wall seems like a character, man. That seems like the interview that probably required the most, uh, fact checking maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the most legal passes. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was definitely, uh, he, he was still, he was still angry about stuff that happened in the eighties. I mean, he was, he was definitely a gift. Um, everything he said was entertaining, but, um, yeah, he sadly passed away. Now, is this the guy who Brad Pitt is sort of based on or no, that was someone else because you mm. in, in uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. That's, uh, yeah, that's Gene LaBelle. That's Gene okay. LaBelle. Yeah, who, yeah. Um, that's right. That's right. Well, I think I think um, I, I I interviewed Tarantino about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood before it came out, and he kind of alluded to Cliff Booth, the Brad Pitt character, being based on multiple different people. But I think one of them was definitely Gene LaBelle, who got into it with Bruce Lee on the set of The Green Hornet, and um, yeah, he's the guy. Gene LaBelle is the guy that notoriously tangled with Seagal on one of those sets, and the urban legend goes that he choked out Seagal, and then Seagal soiled that's himself. Right, yeah but <laughs> that's right that's right accounts, that's accounts in the book, vary. right that's in the book yeah and i spoke yeah. to two two different people who were there, apparently there on the day and they had different accounts but um we we shall never know the truth no no you no. know what print the lead print the legend <laughs> um that reminds me i didn't know about this thing and and as somebody who covered the award season for like 20 years i never knew this this showdown between stallone and schwarzenegger at the golden globes what year was that? 77? That was, I believe, yeah, it was 76 or 77. I can't remember the, off the top for, of my head. It was a Rocky yeah. year, right? Yeah. He won for Rocky and Schwarzenegger was won there, the... Yeah, he was there for Best Newcomer. And um, yeah, I didn't know about it when I embarked on it. And I was very happy to find it because, um, yeah, uh, Stallone talked about it recently in a video interview. And um, apparently... He like, threw something at him. Apparently he picked up a bowl of flowers and threw it at Schwarzenegger's head. <laughs> which is an amazing image <laughs> yeah and i kind of did some research and i looked up who was there on the night and it's all like farrah fawcett and all of the and I, I, i'm trying to imagine this happening but um yeah it, it apparently happened so they, they they were not fond of each other at that time well certainly stallone was not fond was not was not happy about schwarzenegger um that's so early to not be happy about schwarzenegger it's not like you know what i mean it's it's like bro you got some you got more to come but I just thought that was wild. Like, I'm like, is this tell? Was this televised? Was this, you know? So anyway, I failed story. to find out what flowers they were. But um, yeah, I was thinking, is there some kind of War of Roses uh, line? But um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was how it began. All the flowers. That, that's that next level of detail. That's that Pulitzer Prize level of detail. <laughs> if you get the flowers. Now you sort of pegged 1993 as the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back, you know, uh, with these two movies from Schwarzenegger and Stallone, both of which I love, by the way, Last Action Hero and Demolition Man. Uh, these are two films that collectively feel like an elegy to this period uh, and these figures. And they're also sort of meta in how they kind of gaze upon action heroes. And then a year later, it's our movie. But, uh, you know, I... I can only sit back and be bemused whenever people talk shit about Last Action Hero because, I mean, I guess it's objectively considered a piece of junk, but I absolutely love it, and I think the spirit of the original material still runs in its veins. I know a lot of people thought it was ruined from what it was originally on the page, but that movie is the bomb. Like, I love it. <laughs> 
So, yeah. and, 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 you know, demolition man gets much better treatment in the book, I think, yeah. uh, not from you necessarily, but from, you know, folks that look back on it. And I love that movie too. It, it has our girl, Sandra Bullock, uh, which is sort of the justification for Fox settling on her for speed, by the way. Uh, it was like, okay, she did an action movie, so I guess she can do ours. Yeah. So I wonder if Laurie, Laurie Petty, uh, might have ended up in speed. Exactly. <laughs> had she not been fired from Demolition Man. But I think Arnold uh, Arnold would agree with you on Last Action Hero. He just did an interview where he said that's his most underrated film. But um, definitely the, most of the people I spoke to, I was kind of led in the book a bit by the filmmakers and what they think of what they made. And and certainly McTin and John McTin and, and Shane Black are very down on um, Last Action Hero. But I'm with you. I, I, I don't, I don't, maybe my enthusiasm for it isn't quite as big as yours, but I, I definitely think it's underrated. And has a ton of good stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, and, and for me, obviously, it could be nostalgia, but I, I've never not liked it. I've never thought that it was a sore spot. I mean, there is wonky humor in that, that it's willful, you know? It's not like the movie is some bust, that it missed some mark. Like, it seems to me exactly what it was trying to be. I mean, collectively, obviously, there's a lot of cooks in that kitchen, but... I don't know. I think it's uh, and and I love the way you frame it with Demolition Man as these these two movies that mark that sort of end as this, um, you know, reflection of of who these guys have been over the last decade at that point. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Demolition Demolition Man. I mean, I I can watch Demolition Man any time of the week. (laughs) I've got I've got both of these movies on VHS in my garage, which is like a time warp when I go out there. (laughs) But yeah, I'm a big fan. So. I agree. And I, I don't know, both films kind of feel like the end. I mean, obviously, it went past 1993, but that era of of, of practical effects and people blowing shit up for real and it not just being CG. And it was starting to creep in, obviously, with Jurassic Park and, and that kind of era where even with Terminator 2, with the CG starting to creep into these films, but they were still blowing stuff up, blowing buildings up, and, and it was still being done, for, stuff was being done for real. Uh, which is something I love about Speed, re- rewatching mm-hmm. it again, is that they're there in LA and there's no green screen really, or not certainly not in the bus, not much in the bus stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure in the train that wasn't done for real well, on the moving no, train, but the the train was rear screen projection, um, like exquisite rear screen projection, uh, sort of the the peak of uh, that um, technique. Uh, that's what I love about Speed actually is that. And I've said this before, it's it's a movie that was made at the height of a number of filmmaking techniques that were on their way out. So it's hard to even say, oh, speed was influential because, as we say, CGI was coming in and would soon be the status quo. So it feels like speed is sort of the peak of something. And and yeah, people would still keep doing things for real for a while. I've in some of my conversations with some of these effects guys, they sort of peg Dante's peak as the like the last big practical effects show. And uh, and yeah, it's, it does start to fade away after that. But yeah, I mean, that's that's something that's that's part of why I wanted to do this podcast was sort of a celebration of that without dumping on CGI and visual effects artists, because I'm not here to do that. And I, I thought it was interesting. You pegged Jurassic Park beating the tar out of Last Action Hero as well. Here we are. New era. Yeah. And I, I, I think Stallone pinpoints something even earlier that the Burton Batman are saying this is it. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, because you got Michael Keaton, and I guess you know Keanu Reeves, nineteen ninety four Keanu Reeves and Michael Keaton both have a slim slim build. They're not yeah. what you would expect in the eighties. They wouldn't have been action heroes. 
Yeah, Stallone says something like, uh, once you could Velcro your muscles on, that was the end of it. And it's like, <laughs> I, I literally never thought about that. I mean, I've never, obviously Batman is is the beginning of kind of the new era of, of superhero, uh, not the era we're in now, but, you know, that's 10 years after Superman, you know, and, and so it's like, it's sort of, and it, and it did gangbusters at the box office. And so it sort of can be marked as the beginning of, of superheroes starting to come in. And obviously through the nineties would be a huge franchise. I wouldn't say Superman was a huge franchise in the eighties, you know, I mean, no, true. completely fizzled. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you can draw a line from John McClane, from Bruce Willis's John McClane to Jack Traven, um, quite totally. clearly. I think, um, yeah, I, John McClane is burlier and more muscly. I'm not not having a shot at Keanu Reeves' physique. He looks great in this. I mean, he looks. This is peak Keanu Reeves and speed, but it's definitely mm. he's an ordinary guy. Like you, you don't even when he arrives and he's there in the the kind of the group of SWAT guys, he doesn't stand out. It's like if you had Arnold coming in, everyone is looking at Arnold, but Keanu kind of blends in a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I talk a lot about in the book, the, the middle chapter is on Die Hard and then kind of the second half of the book is all the ripples really of Die Hard and what happens when this film comes in. This one film kind of transforms the whole genre really. And, uh, you know, in terms of high concept plot lines, but also in terms of what the, who, what an action hero looks like and what he sounds like. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think Keanu in speed is like an evolution of that. It pushes it even further. Yeah, it's about relatability. It's about, uh, I mean, Die Hard is definitely still in the land of one-liners, but, um, and Yonda Bonten and everybody wanted to get away from that in speed. Uh, and so when you get the influx of a voice like Joss Whedon, who we've talked to on the show about this new sort of uh, pop culture voice, um, that all does start to shift and you get away from the one-liner and you get away from also just heroes that are seen as just renegades and mavericks. I mean, and uh, and yeah, Die Hard is sort of there's a lot of DNA uh, that's shared there. And uh, you started to get into this. I was going to ask, like, what do you make of just that new wave of action heroes that came in the wake of these guys? Keanu Reeves, Nicolas Cage, action hero Nicolas Cage. I mean, it was crazy at the time. Will Smith, you know, uh, in our episode detailing the search for the lead actor in Speed, we talk about how they were sort of all over the place with that. But the point was made by a Fox exec that the heroes of the era were all older, you know, Arnold Stallone, Seagal, they're all in their forties at the time. Bruce Willis is late thirties and Keanu Reeves turns 29 years old. The day production, the day after production begins on speed and cage is the same age. Will Smith is a little younger. Uh, it's clearly the dawning of a younger mold, you know? Yeah. I mean, Seagal was considered, he came after uh, obviously Arnold and Stallone and he was considered the young one, but he, I don't think he ever truly looked young. Like Seagal had no. a kind of like heavy, he always seems like he's like 50 even when he's in his 20s because he's just like this granite guy who's just walking around like an Easter Island statue. But yeah, Keanu <laughs> is so fresh-faced and has just that youthfulness coming. I, I, I think you could say that Cage never 100% seems young either. I don't know how old he was when he did The Rock, um, Con Air, but... Um, yeah, Keanu has so much. Uh, he had been just, early thirties, like thir- thirty-three or so, I think. Right, he has so much energy um, in this film, and it just matches the subject completely. Like the fact that this is a film that just doesn't stop, and you've got this guy who is, you know, in great condition. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Cage action fan. Like these are some of my favorite movies: Con Air and Face Off, and and all of those. I mean, they're all 
you know, certainly um, The Rock has got a bit of diehard DNA. I think it took a long, I mean, you still see it. You still see films that are diehard on a, and that was diehard in Alcatraz. Um, and you see it in this film where it's basically three diehard films sellotaped together. You've got diehard in a building, which is diehard <laughs> again, but you did, you know, this is the, like the compact version of it in 20 minutes and then diehard on a bus. And then I, I'd love, I mean, I was, I was talking to some people about, speed over the last few days and some people some of my friends were like nah that last bit on the train doesn't work they shouldn't have done that they should have finished it on the bus i love that you just get an extra diehard film stuck on the end i love it <laughs> i always say it's three movies in one you get a lot yeah. of bang for your buck i mean yeah. yeah objectively the movie the emotional ending of the movie is when they come flying out from under the bus but why not have i mean you got to deal with dennis hopper you got to have uh you know you got to close this thing up uh, and, and folks have heard by now on this podcast about how that changed in the development period when they were at Paramount for a period of time. And it, the execs there were like, there's just too much bus. Like they were exhausted by the bus at a certain point. And so let's do something else. And Graham Yost was like, well, it's all modes of public transport, you know, elevator, bus. How about a subway? And it worked for L.A. at the time because the subway was new mm. and sort of mysterious to Angelinos, I think probably still is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the third act. Um, and that's where a lot of that filmmaking technique I was talking about comes into play. The rear screen projection, there's a lot of awesome miniature model work with the train derailment. And then obviously the real thing in front of Chinese theater. Um, the weather showing 2001. Yeah. Did you find out in your, in your research why it's 2001 space odyssey? Oh, well, Jan's a big Kubrick guy. Um, you know, they're watching the shining and twister when the, when the tornado rips through, uh, he, he's just. That's him. That's him putting his stuff in. I was actually going to ask, did you talk to Jan DeBont? Jan DeBont was obviously the DP of uh, Die Hard. So he's kind of got a leg in both worlds here. I didn't end up talking to him. Um, no, I talked to Larry Gordon. I did a big interview with John McTiernan. Um, so I, uh, I I talked to Alan Rickman before he passed. So I, I had enough Die Hard voices. I would have loved to have spoken to Jan DeBont. It was just a case of trying to cram. I can't spend too long on one one thing without moving on, much like speed. Um, yeah, there's a bomb in the book, and I got to keep moving. But um, no, I haven't. I've, I've never spoken to Yanderbon. Um, but now I want to talk to him about Barry Lyndon. <laughs> oh, there you go. You can get Barry Lyndon into him. No, he's fun. Um, yeah, you really do fly through this book, and you're juggling so much. It feels like each of these subjects could be a whole book. Obviously, um, was there stuff that like, what was like the worst thing you had to kind of leave out? Hmm. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. It's one of those things where you're, you've got so much research and so much stuff, and then you're condensing it in, and you kind of lose track of what you left behind. I mean, I would have or, or loved maybe, to have gone maybe, a bit further. Sorry to jump in, but maybe, maybe even like, uh, if if you can't think of something specific, was there just a road you were like, I'm not going to go down that road because there, I'll just have so much more material that I won't know what to do with. Like, whatever you can think of that was just like, ah, I got to keep this on pace. Yeah, I mean, I, when it came to choosing who the eight guys were going to be, there were other people that I considered, you know, do you put Carl Weathers in there? Do you put Wesley Snipes in there? And I'm a big fan of Wesley Snipes and his action stuff, but it was really just about the era and when I was going to end the story. Um, but no, there was enough to juggle without adding more. And it was kind of at a certain point you had to be like, right, we're going to stop there. But Jackie Chan was a fairly late addition. Um, and I'm glad, really glad he's part of it. Um uh especially as like i didn't really fully understand i didn't fully get the connection with stallone um with jackie between jackie chan and stallone and the you know on the set of demolition man they were watching 
Jackie Chan movies. Uh, Stallone was watching Jackie Chan movies in his trailer to inspire himself. So that was really, really nice. Um, but I would have I would have loved to have gone a bit further into the 90s. It's kind of an arbitrary stopping point, you know, when you get to Demolition Man in the last action hero. It kind of felt right to end with those two kind of meta examinations of the action hero. Um, so that felt like the right place to stop. But there's uh, you know, I could have gone as I could have gone as far as speed. I would have happily written about that. And um, you know, Arnold and Stallone had interesting films that they did after 93 for sure. So it feels like Eraser was kind of the end. I mean, I know he does like <laughs> Six your luggage or something and and yeah <laughs> exactly uh but well, i love true like... lies i love true lies that was that was a that was one where i was thinking do you end with true lies um because that's a that's a really really fun bombastic huge movie but um it felt nice to end the story with arnold failing because arnold wins all the way through the book like you look at the 80s and the 90s and he does not make a wrong move like he's just smashing it and whereas stallone is having huge failures and getting stung repeatedly and uh so it felt it felt nice to end with a low for schwarzenegger and stallone actually on top yeah because interesting yeah because i guess i guess true lies would be like you know his saving grace after after last action hero but it's also interesting too because stallone is obviously taking bigger risks in his career throughout and stallone tried everything right yeah he tried country country and western music <laughs> <laughs> he, he tried arm wrestling um he yeah he he did everything because i think arnold um you know i spoke to, to for the book i spoke to a guy called eric morris who was arnold's acting coach uh, very early on like even before um uh like before pumping iron and arnold at that point had barely made any films and he was trying to become a serious dramatic actor. And then there was a certain point where he just decided I'm going to be an action star. I'm not doing that. So he was like, I'm stopping doing this class. I'm going to be an action star and that's all I'm going to do. And he kind of stayed there and that he did it. And obviously he expanded into comedy later on really successfully, which Stallone struggled with, but yeah, Stallone, I don't think he came in and he was writing and he was, he did Rocky, but Rocky wasn't really an action movie, but then he kind of, it just ended up that his action movies were the ones that were huge but he did a ton of other things. Um, but I think as it, as it got into the kind of the late eighties, I think he still got increasingly stuck on his image and was taking less risks. Um, but yeah, I did the, the interesting thing is the comedy, you know, cause they both tried to transition into comedy at the same time and actually with the same people, like the writers of twins also did stop my mom will shoot. And Ivan Reitman was involved in both and twins was this gargantuan hit for Schwarzenegger, but, Stallone for some reason because he's really funny like you read interviews with Stallone and he's hilarious but that didn't translate for whatever reason um yeah I, that stung stung Stallone a lot he didn't like that that is I'm glad you bring that up because I've always thought he's funny like he he has little quips and jokes that it just seems they seem so singular like just the little idioms he'll throw out there I don't know they just, they're, they're I don't know where he gets it from he's just a, I guess he's just a smart guy but uh he's a funny guy he really is. He's underrated. I mean, he's a great, he's a great writer. He writes great screenplays um, and and hilarious and honest to a fault often. I mean, he was one of the most interesting guys to, to write about for sure, because you get to like a Seagal or even a Van Damme and they're, they're what they are. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of unique and hilarious or super interesting in that way. But I think there's something about Stallone. He's so complicated and there's so many facets to him. And there's so many contradictory elements 
that you've got this guy who plays Rambo, but um, also is happy to team up with Dolly Part Dolly Parton and do this <laughs> mad thing. Um, yeah, he's he's super he's super interesting. You can never quite pin him down. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I I don't know why I don't know why he's he never managed to have a successful comedy on. It, it, well, you got to have know, a good script. I mean, you know that. I do think it's funny about Arnold tricking him into doing stuff or my mom will shoot. Um, I haven't seen that one in a while. And weirdly, I sometimes confuse it in my head with throw mama from the train, which is a completely different movie. Great double bill. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, there you go. But in uh, regarding the volume of work he did and how he just always had stuff, it, people forget. I mean, to have Rocky three and first blood in one year. I mean, that's, that's insane. I just I watched First Blood again the other night, and if, actually before we did this, I, I figured I'd watch sort of the seminal works for each of them. So like I watched First Blood, I watched Conan the Barbarian, I watched Missing in Action. the The whole story of Missing in Action is hilarious. The fact that they went out there, they shot Missing in Missing in Action, then they immediately started Missing in Action Two. They come back Missing in Action. Two is the good movie, so they're like, let's put that one out first and put the second one out as missing in action. Or the, I'm see, I'm confusing it. Put it and then it's, put the first movie out as missing in action two, <laughs> the beginning as a prequel, and it's like such a canon thing to do. It's a head fuck. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> I still get confused, and I've written a book about it. But um, yeah, they they came back and just flipped it around and called the one called the second called the first one missing in action two, the beginning. I don't know. I yeah. can't even keep. I've lost the thread now. But um. <laughs> Yeah, what did you make of that? Oh, it's it's funny because it's like how much dialogue is in that movie? It, like two pages worth? I I mean, it it seems like every time you look up they're they're still in the same sequence. It's just wall-to-wall machine gun fire. Like the soundtrack of that movie is just constant barrage of of gunfire and uh it just seems like the whole thing is a giant montage. And I I laugh my ass off at the at the, <laughs> at the at the the freeze frame at the end. I mean, I've seen this movie back in the '80s, but like, you know, the whole thing is about him going in to get POWs out of Vietnam, just like you know, Rambo Two, kind of an obsession with this in the '80s, and uh, he bursts into this like press conference where they're like, "There's no POWs in Vietnam," and he's like, "Here's one," and then it's like fear freeze frame on Chuck <laughs> Norris's face as if he's saying, "See, I told you," and that's the end of the movie, and it's it just cracks me up. I don't know. It's glorious. And introducing Chuck Norris watching a Spider-Man cartoon on TV is amazing yeah. as well. Spending time on that too. Like here's a shot of the cartoon oh, yeah. for like 20 seconds. I'm just like, what oh, yeah. we, what's going on? Canon Canon paid for those rights. They were gonna they were gonna use them. There you go. Then I watched blood I watched Bloodsport. I'll probably watch Above the Law tonight. Um, you know. Just thought I'd watch the seminal ones. Uh I was gonna ask you actually, um, about your favorites for each one. But you know what, before we get to that, regarding this sort of new wave, and I know we're bouncing around, but re- starting, regarding this sort of new wave of action heroes, uh, you know someone who was sort of poised to be one of these guys was Brandon Lee. Uh, you know, had rapid fire. He obviously died making The Crow. He was sort of the only guy that was brought up in the context of younger people when I was talking to some of these execs that that would have made sense if you were going to get a younger guy for speed because again they were all over the place like they weren't obviously they would have loved to have had like bruce willis or something but they were looking at like charlie sheen and william baldwin i mean this was going to be a straight up b movie all the way 
But as far as younger guys go, Brandon Lee was sort of poised and his father, of course, Bruce Lee, he looms over this book as like a godfather or something. Um, what did you think of his influence uh, on on this era and these guys? Uh, Bruce Lee? Um, yeah, I mean, huge, especially when you get into uh, Steven Seagal, when you get into the more kind of kicky, punchy guys. Um, I'd say less so for Stallone and Schwarzenegger and mm. more for... Uh, definitely for Jackie Chan because I mean Jackie Chan was positioned in China as the new the new Bruce Lee when mm-hmm. when Bruce Lee died they were like and he worked with Bruce Lee a few times um, and uh, Chuck Norris obviously faced off against Bruce Lee in Way of yeah. the Dragon in the Coliseum at the end um, yeah I mean huge I, obviously he was you know the king of the martial arts movie and so that was the kind of the benchmark that everyone was trying to hit. Um, and just the charisma of him and the coolness of him. Um, I think everyone kind of had their own variation on the formula. Um, you know, maybe Chuck Norris leaned into the seriousness a little bit too far, which ironically makes him the funniest <laughs> because he's so serious <laughs> in all of these films that it's just hilarious. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, Bruce Lee obviously had a gigantic impact and and you know the fact he only made a handful of films and they were all iconic and i think it, he just had that image just like the coolest guy that you were trying to match and um i think the more successful ones were the ones that did their own thing like van damme created his own persona it took him a little while to get there i think if you look at the early ones like bloodsport and kickboxer he's trying to be super serious and it doesn't quite work for him it's only when he moves away from that formula that it becomes effective and i think Segal just gets stuck in that groove of i'm going to look cooler than anyone else and (laughs) it doesn't do him any favors really yeah i mean bruce and i didn't mean like that martial arts was necessarily an influence but just becoming an action hero becoming a king of any genre like he was sort of the guy uh to to sort of i guess make that mold you know like i mean certainly quote action movies were something different uh back then and you've got your your dirty harrys and whatnot but uh, you know, your book says here, Kings of Carnage. I mean, it seems to me Bruce Lee was the first King of Carnage. If you had anyone who was quite the same one-man army kind of thing, I mean, he was certainly the most iconic. Mm-hmm. And a guy who would, you know, just face down entire armies and you couldn't wait for him just to snap and just kick everyone's ass. Um Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was so. Yeah, I think he was. I think you're right. I think he was like the original guy that everyone was trying to match, and yeah. um, certainly the coolest. Yeah, I just found that interesting because he just he sort of looms uh, over over the the proceedings in the book. You know, uh, was there anybody that you were not able to get that you're sort of either dying to ask questions of or or follow ups of because you might have heard stories and you're like, God, I got to talk to this person, and, and maybe you weren't able to get them. I mean, I would have loved to have talked to Joel Silver. I think he, the stories that man has, uh, you know, he was all over this era and, um, you know, just delivering one like huge pumped up movie after another. I would have loved to have talked to him. He's quite tricky to get hold of. Um, I would have loved to have talked to Bruce Willis about, um, he doesn't, obviously, he's not doing much press these days. He's sadly not yeah. not well, but even, you know, I interviewed him probably about 10 years ago and tried to ask him about Die Hard, but he is not interested. <laughs> he wasn't interested. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't well, know. Well, Joe Silver's a big one. I mean, that that that's obviously somebody who would connect a lot of dots. 
yeah, for sure. I think he would have some amazing stories. But I was lucky enough to to kind of talk to Paul, you know, Paul Vovan and Rennie Harlan and Bettinen, who were, you know, the 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 guys who were all over that. Stephen D'Souza involved in tons of those movies. I mean, it's interesting how it's the same people over and over yeah. again that you see popping up as like writers, producers, directors. And yeah. um it was quite a small club in a way. I think it's fascinating D'Souza ends up directing Street Fighter and it's just a colossal disaster after everything he's done and it's like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna be the guy to do street fighter with jean-claude and holy crap that movie just yeah. uh the fact that there were two studios involved in it i mean it's no i was just gonna say like talking of bruce lee um you know it's another tournament movie and i think any <laughs> any time you see from blood sport to you know there's a ton of them. The Quest. Yeah. There's quite a lot of Van Damme ones for some reason. But whenever you get one of those movies where fighters from around the world are gathered, it's they're all kind of ripping off Enter the Dragon. Totally. Um, but yeah, Street Fighter. It, again, it's the hubris. Some of the most fun things to write about in the book were just the hubris of of them putting together these projects that they were like, this absolutely cannot miss. Like, look at the people we're getting together and look at what we're doing. On a side note, there's a Jackie Chan film called City Hunter, which um, anyone who's a fan of the Street Fighter 2 video game should check out because Jackie Chan plays. Yeah, I think he gets like kicked into an arcade machine of Street Fighter 2 and he becomes all the characters, complete with the sound effects. It's actually amazing. Head to YouTube and check it out. Yeah, I, when I saw that in the book, I was like, I've never heard of this. I That sounds amazing. Um, it is amazing. Now, what are your you know, pop quiz hotshot? What are your favorite movies for each of these guys? I'll start with Stallone. Mm. I mean, that's the obvious ones. I mean, Rocky, the original, Rocky Four, I'm a huge fan of just the just the pure excess of it. Uh, I don't think the the new cut is quite as effective as the original one. He got rid of Seiko the robot, which I'm not. Yeah, happy you about. can't get rid of the robot. Yeah, I've got a real soft spot for. I don't know why this has popped into my head, but I, I really enjoy Tango and Cash, even though it's it's objectively not a great film. But I have a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with the kind of the mid level trashy Stallone films. I, I really enjoy Cliffhanger as well. Um yeah. it's a that is a diehard ripoff, but I just enjoy, you know, seeing Stallone on a mountaintop fighting John Lithgow. By the uh, way, I don't know if it's my favorite, but yeah. Rennie Harlan was the one major director they approached for speed. He was nice enough to meet with them for an hour. They were trying to get him hot off of Cliffhanger. The movie hadn't come out yet, but everybody knew it was going to be a big hit because the trailer was like a huge deal, you know, and uh he he said no. But Stallone, um, I'm not going to try to be cool with my selections, by the way, with all of these. My favorite Stallone movie is Cobra. <laughs> okay. Crime is the disease. He's the cure. There you um, go. Pitch black movie. I mean, it's just dark. And I, I remember even I saw that one too young. And it's just I, I remember the knife with the, the, the spikes on it. I just in a trashy movie, but I love it. It's a fascinating movie. I, I'm a huge fan of the Pepsi, the sheer amount of Pepsi Cola um, product placement. I believe that Marion Cobretti actually his apartment has a giant neon Pepsi sign. Uh, that's and then there's a there's that uh, iconic supermarket shootout action scene where again there's just Pepsi everywhere. It's great. Mm -hmm. uh, big fan of him eating, cutting his pizza with the scissors as well. Yeah, I would have liked to have talked more about Cobra in the book. I had to kind of skirt over it because I was doing a chapter about the geopolitics and I was kind of heading towards Rambo 3. So I, yeah. I mean, would have loved to have done a chapter on Cobra. Yeah. How Underrated. About, how about Arnold? Arnold. Um, it's the obvious stuff, really. It's Terminator 2, Predator. 
Uh, I quite enjoy Red Heat. That's maybe a guilty pleasure. I don't know if it's up there with with uh, his best, but it's um, certainly got the best naked fight in a sauna from any <laughs> Arnold film. Oh, okay. You you qualified it with Arnold film because I was like, what about Eastern Promises? Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I got to go Commando. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, Commando is Commando is so much fun. So much fun. Just the steel drums. Yes. Oh my God. James Horner, we love you so much. Uh, although I guess it's basically the same as Forty Eight Hour Score, right? Like he's all composers sort of lift from themselves constantly, and he did it more than most. But I do love steel drums and saxophone in a score. I'm there, and I love the 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 song over the closing credits too. That that song is yeah. the bomb, and I will not quite, sing quite, it now. Uh... Yeah, quite uplifting uh, power anthem. Surprising for the end of a film with like a body count in the triple digits, but um, yeah, Commando, yeah. Commando is a great one. Um, I uh, big fan of Vernon Wells, uh, uh, yes. his iconic villain and his bizarre chainmail vest that he wears. Um, Absolutely, that was a kind of a wild shoot. With me. <laughs> apparently, uh, well, opinions differ, accounts vary on on this, but apparently, uh, the, one of the producers went to see um, Rambo Two. And uh, came back and said, "We've got to kill more people in Commando than they did in this." So I actually, sat. I, I love the idea of someone sitting there with a pen, like tallying up how many people get killed, and which obviously people now do on the internet. Everyone counts up every, you know, the John Wick Chapter Four body mm-hmm. count. But um, yeah, I love the idea in the '80s of someone actually there with a notepad doing that. Yeah, Die Hard is hard not to say Die Hard for Bruce Willis, I guess. Um, you know, I actually do love Die Hard with a Vengeance a lot. I mean, I like Die Hard too, also, but. I've always liked Die Hard with a Vengeance, even though it didn't start out life as a Die Hard movie. But uh, there was a lot none of that none back of them then. Did. Yeah, none exactly, did. exactly. I, I, I think that would make a good, pretty good double bill with, um, with speed. You know, you got the guy issuing the hero orders to run around doing tasks, and um, you've got him in a kind of double act. You know, it's one thing I like about Speed is the the fact that he's Keanu's always in a double act, either with Jeff uh, Daniels or. Sandra Bullock and I, I I love the double act in Die Hard Free with Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis. Um yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say the original Die Hard though. That's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, that's hard. Um and speaking of movies that became other movies, when Speed was at Paramount, uh we, we talked about this a few episodes back, but Don Granger was developing it there. He's at Skydance now, and his last ditch effort when it was about to be put into turnaround was to make Speed Beverly Hills Cop Three. And he was like, let's just put Axel Foley on the bus because they were trying to find a Beverly Hills Cop 3 at the time. And that was oh his God. like attempt. And he says he got a little bit of traction and then it just went away. But uh, can you imagine? Oh Would there have been a banana in the tailpipe? Is that, is that how <laughs> <laughs> when he would have stopped the bomb? <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, he, he, as he said, it, it, uh, it might have been a better movie than what they ultimately got for uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Great George Lucas cameo. Yeah. Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris, I'm going to say Code of Silence. That's an easy one, Code of Silence, because it's a pretty... <laughs> It's it's pin pickings for Chuck. I am a fan of I, I'm a fan of Chuck. Um, I'm a fan of elements of Chuck. I, I find him quite a um, enjoyable screen presence. <laughs> Not the most convincing, but I, I quite <laughs> like him. He's trying his best. But um, yeah, Code of Silence, which is directed by Andrew Davis, who directed the early Seagal movies and Under Siege, um, is a genuinely good film. Yeah, and as I say in the book, even Roger Ebert gave it a good review, and it actually is the only Chuck Norris movie that that got good reviews. Huh. Um, but it's a great movie. It's set in Chicago, like every Andrew Davis movie, and um, 
It's got John Mahoney, aka Martin from from Frasier, mm-hmm. dad from Frasier, is in it. And it's got Chuck Norris teaming up with a robot to take on Colombian drug dealers, which you can't go far wrong with that. But it's 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 it's, it's genuinely a pretty good cop film. It's um it's got Chuck Norris teaming up with his partner is Dennis Farina in one of his like very early roles. And uh, Dennis Farina was actually a cop in Chicago at the time. So he was leaving the set and then going off and actually arresting people, which is pretty cool. I admit I've never seen that one, nevertheless. Uh, and I haven't seen this one in probably 25 years. But I know I loved Delta Force in the 80s. So I'm going to say Delta Force. Okay. I mean, how, how Good can you be? Good uh, Yeah. Who, who was the guy? Uh, the Robert Forster as, <laughs> as a terrorist. Right, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wouldn't happen missile today. firing missile firing motorcycles. Um, yeah, come yeah. on. That feels like a little bit of GI Joe mask influence or something. Yeah, Van Dam. Hmm. I'm gonna say Time Cop. I, I honestly, I, I don't remember most of his movies. They all become one movie in my head. I know I saw Nowhere to Run a lot. <laughs> And I'm not saying Nowhere to Run is my favorite movie from Van Damme, because I, I doubt it is if I were to watch them all. But it's the one I remember the most, because I just remember he was out in the woods, camping in the he backyard. Us- he usually the- is. Yeah, <laughs> he's usually in the forest in some form. No, actually, maybe it's Hard Target. Maybe I'll change it from Time Cop to Hard Target. I, I am a huge fan of, John- of Hard Target, and mm-hmm. um, not least because he plays a character called Chance Bordreau. Who punches a snake? And, <laughs> but it's got Lance Henriksen as a great. This is obviously John Woo's first Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got Wilford Brimley riding. You've probably seen the GIF, but Wilford Brimley yeah. like riding on horseback with one of the greatest screen explosions ever going on behind him. <laughs> um, it's a ton of fun. It's so much fun, and it's got a great. I just saw some people talking on Twitter the other day about there's a scene where Lance Henriksen's jacket catches on fire, and he just kept going like he didn't break character and like improvise some stuff while he took it off um but that's a that's a really fun film but yeah that and time cop awesome seagal i mean jesus um gonna be under siege i think just it's kind of despite seagal rather than i'm not a big they probably you can probably tell if you've read the book like i'm not a big seagal fan um i think he doesn't seem um, likable so (laughs) No, I think he had the skills, but I think he's just a very unpleasant screen persona. It's hard to really get behind him, and um, you tend to feel sorry for the guys he's beating up. But yeah, Under Siege, Under Siege has got so much going for it. You know, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, it's one. It's one of the better Die Hard knockoff type things. But yeah, um, Andrew Davis again. Yeah. Do you get the vibe that any of that stuff? Where you know he's insinuating that he's knows people and was with the agency, you know that kind of shit. You get the vibe that any of that was not bullshit. Um, because I'll be honest, I can't tell. It could either be total bullshit, or if it's true, this is how it would be true. It would feel like total bullshit. You know what I mean? Well, he always had this line that was kind of ingenious, where he he said, "Well, if you were a, if you were really a, a secret agent, no one would be able to tell, no one would be able to prove it." So it's like he he basically had the perfect line because no one could ever unravel it. Like, however obtuse his his things were, it just added to his argument that he was this guy. But no, I I, I well, it, if there was anything there, it was wildly exaggerated. I mean, he did know people who 
were kind of involved, definitely involved in that world. If you go back and read magazine articles from the time, there's definitely, he has connections to real criminals, real spies. There, mm-hmm. there was stuff going on there. Uh, as for whether he was involved and he was, you know, doing missions as he was claiming, no, <laughs> I, don't believe, I don't believe that. One of the, I think it was the screenwriter of Executive Decision who I spoke to told me that he would come in and he'd have a loaded gun and he'd put it down on Monday morning on the, on the desk and and they'd just be like trying to make casual conversation with this terrifying man just saying, oh, what did you do at the weekend, Stephen? He was like, I can't tell you, it's classified. <laughs> so, I mean, there's no chance in the mid-90s that he was Ugh. out like doing whatever he was doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I interviewed I interviewed him for an hour uh, uh, a while back and it was it was definitely a an eye-opening. Uh, there's not a glimmer of humour to anything he says. He's deadly serious at all times, as you kind of expect. But um, yeah, he definitely, uh, he's not going to tell you, he's not going to spill anything he's very careful here's the thing if it is indeed all bullshit there's an argument there for him being one of the greatest actors of all time because he never breaks (laughs) never breaks so there you go um vladimir putin dolph lundgren i mean i'm gonna go ahead and say mine first because there's not like a lot of good ones to choose from here um only because it was the first movie i saw in a theater Masters of the Universe. <laughs> do you like Masters of the Universe? Okay. No, I, I don't think I, I do. I don't think I do. I, I, I like I like the score. I like the design. Like I, I think he looks cool as He Man. Um, what's wrong with that movie is right there in the t- tagline. Uh, it was it's something like a battle fought in the stars comes to Earth, and it's like no, we don't want it on Earth. We want to see Eternia. Like you know, we want to see He Man stuff. Like doing it on a backlot to look like a a city alley, a, a lot of that. I mean, it's a terrible movie, but it was the first movie I saw in the theater, so I have a soft spot for it. It's got a few things going for the it. The editor of Lawrence of Arabia. It, yeah. <laughs> Should have edited a bit more. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of, I'm not a fan of Masters Universe. Um, although Dolph made a very good He-Man, I thought you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better one. But um, yeah, I'm a fan of Showdown in Little Tokyo. You talked about Brandon Lee earlier. Yeah. And um they make a really good double act, and I it has one of the most bizarre one-liners in an action movie from the eighties, which is "You have the biggest dick I've ever seen on a man." Which one of them <laughs> says to the other one? It's quite quite unexpected. Um, out of nowhere. Yeah, they're just making the subtext text, I guess. But um, yeah, I have a soft spot for that. Is it genuinely fun? Fun over the top action movie. And Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan is really hard. I just. I think that it's just all about the action. With I don't think you watch a Jackie Tan movie for the plot because they're often quite hard to d- differentiate what the plot is. And I think he would probably be the first one to say that. It's obviously about the amazing action sequences, and there are just so many. Like, how do you choose? Is it the um, like the shopping mall punch up at the end of Police Story, where, where they nicknamed the film Glass Story just because there was so much glass being broken, and it was just this insane i i got to see uh, a triple bill of police story one to three on the big screen a couple of months ago and i like i was still reeling from it a week later the, the third one is amazing where he teams up with michelle yo super cop mm-hmm. um drunken master 2 has an amazing big fight scene at the end armor of god which is like his indiana jones movie um mm-hmm. where he almost died 
I don't know. It's very hard to pick one. Um, I really enjoyed Miracles, actually, I saw recently. It's not my favourite, but uh, he directed this film called Miracles, and it has a big uh, final set piece in a rope factory. <laughs> it's like one of those locations where he's just like, I need some rope. And so they set it at a rope factory, but it's it's really <laughs> ingenious. Just the little the little gags and the little beats that um that he does are just and they're so rare in action movies, those clever little action beats. You see so many action movies where it just gets boring because it's just people firing guns and there's nothing, there's no cleverness to it. But those little clever little gags that you get in like Indiana Jones movie, the first three Indiana Jones movies, like he fills his his Jackie Chan movies from that period are just filled with them. Yeah, and uh, this is a very long-winded way of saying I'll go with Police Story Three, Supercop. It's hard not to say that one or Police Story One. Um, I I like Rush Hour because I like when he was finally packaged in such a way. Um, I, I think there was something about finally getting that entrenchment in Hollywood, and the Chris Tucker thing is it really works. Um, I, I think it's great to see him bouncing off of somebody like that. So I, I just see it as sort of a level up for him in a sense. Not that it's a better movie than, you know, the other stuff, but it's when it's like, okay, this is what, this is the fulfilled promise of Jackie Chan, you know? Yeah. And it was great to see him come to, I mean, he's, he's not, I've interviewed him quite a few times. He's not a fan of the Rush Hour movies hugely. Um, I don't know if he's that proud of any of his American stuff. I mean, but it was great to see him finally get into Hollywood um, yeah. and be recognized by the whole world. Totally. Because I think, you know, Asian knew he was incredible, but it's spreading to the whole Western world as well. And everyone kind of getting to see what he could do was fantastic. Yeah. And I know that meant a lot to him. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if any of his uh, his American stuff for me quite quite stands up to that Chinese stuff, which is just unbelievable. Yeah, so for sure, for sure. It would have been boring if we all if we had the same ones. So I had to true. keep it. I had this to mix it up a little bit. Let's let's close here. Let's uh, finish by talking a little bit about speed. I mean, do you think speed belongs in this canon? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, it's an incredible it's an incredible film. And I think um, it could be called a diehard knockoff, but I, I don't think it does. I don't think I've ever thought of it like that. It's its own thing. It feels it, it felt I remember seeing it at the cinema when it came out and it felt super fresh and it still felt fresh when I saw it last week. It's um, it just moves and moves and it's so clever and nimbly plotted. Um, it's got a great villain. Um, maybe where it falls down is the one liners. I think it's actually um, Jack Traven is actually a very generous action hero in that he doesn't take all the one liners. Like Annie gets a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um And he, she gets a lot of the great moments. She does obviously a lot of the action herself. But um, yeah, Keanu gets a couple of one-liners at the end after he takes out Dennis Hopper, and they're pretty bad. <laughs> and that's no, the only not. area where the no, film... they're not. You, they're do not you bad. stand by them? I stand by them. <laughs> I'm taller is an all-timer line, as far as I'm concerned. Well, he was taller than Dennis Hopper before he lost his head. That's anyway. not the point. <laughs> it comes, it's the, and it's just, the way would, he says it too, in that Keanu way, like, "Yeah, well, I'm taller. I'm taller." <laughs> yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Look, I, it made me smile, but I just, it's so out of character that that character would suddenly start doing one liners to himself. And yeah. then he thinks of another one and then he goes in and, and, and does I don't a double like, one liner. I but don't like that one. I don't like coming. It's like, don't gild the lily. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't come back with the, he lost his head. It's like we already, we already got one. Been, yeah, what would have been great if he had just, you see him come down and then he just repeats the one that we've already heard because <laughs> he's so proud of it. It's like, hey. <laughs> I said, and then he said, "I'm smarter." Um, but no, I, I, I mean, speed is. Uh, 
obviously you don't need me here to say that speed is is incredible but i i have a lot of um i have a lot of love for it and I, as i was saying like right at the start like these action movies were getting more and more big and bloated and grandiose and this film obviously is not small but it comes along and it feels small in the best way like it feels like it's just this little brisk you know there's no fat on it at all yeah and i think that it had a great like impact on the genre and i think people hope you know some people learned lessons from that regarding regarding there's no being fat on i think there's like two deleted scenes like everything they shot's in the movie basically you know like it's very controlled and lean but why do you think and maybe i'm being sensitive but why do you think it's not considered typically in the canon it's almost like when people finally watch it again they're like oh yeah this movie kicks ass you know it's not always top of mind i guess i don't know it's a good question because i don't know i don't know i kind of see it having uh having its own influence in the way that die hard had that ripple effect and and you saw die hard on a i I feel like speed did that to a lesser extent but you kind of have i was thinking about movies that kind of do speed Mm -hmm. again in a different way and i couldn't think of that many but crank is certainly one of them um which is like die hard in a human body (laughs) there's um i was there's an x-files episode where brian cranston is in a car and it can't stop um which is is clearly like somebody saw speed there was another one i was trying to think of but um i don't know are there any other movies you can think of obviously like unstoppable yeah unstoppable that's my point is that it's not influential and, mm. and maybe that's the answer. It's because you can't find its DNA and everything that came after it. And it's because I think of what I've, what I said, it was more of like the peak of something as opposed to a watershed. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to be, uh, you know, in the canon. And uh, so, yeah, I guess, um, I guess with, I guess with Keanu, like the matrix has kind of overshadowed speed a bit. It's, you know, yeah, I prefer speed, but I mean, well, Mm, what am I going to pick, Speed or the original Matrix? I, I mean, the Matrix sequels have sullied, sullied the whole Matrix things for me in a major way. But, yeah. uh, you know. That first one is perfect, though. I mean, yeah. we don't have to choose. Thankfully, yeah. we don't have to choose. Yeah. But yeah. it's Don't make me choose. But it is cool that, you know, Speed is definitely the seminal moment for him becoming an action star. And that is absolutely what he is today. I mean, he's still kicking ass on screen right now. He's still doing it. He's still doing it. My thing, too, is, and it's not as simple as this, but they don't make them like they used to, uh, you know, action movies today, and this is where I wanted to kind of close with you, um, what does the outlook look like to you? I mean, it seems like, yeah, these kinds of movies at this budget can, you, you do see them made sometimes, they're on streamers usually, uh, but the 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 marketplace is all about superheroes today, and and massive budgets and you know this is a movie that was made for 28 million dollars uh, it started out at 15 but it's it's something about needing the strictures of a budget i feel like with and how that breeds creativity that's my take but what do you think about just the act the outlook of action films and are we just never going back or is is you know is the pendulum going to swing again like what do you think yeah, I was thinking this while I was watching it again, um, that it just felt so different and refreshing to what we're used to these days. Because I think it's the simplicity of it. It's this lean, mean, sleek 
kind of shark-like movie that's just moving. And nowadays everything has to be interconnected and it has to be setting up something or it's got to be fast 10, which is setting up two more, you know, one more, oh, it's two more. And so everything is is just engineered to be like one piece in a puzzle that they're going to build on. And I think what's really refreshing about Speed is it's just this, you know, apart from the the not great sequel, it's just its own thing. It's just, And um, I don't know, I, I'd like to think that people are going to, go back and, and try to recreate this. Uh, but I think it's tricky because I think it's multiple things that happened all at the same time. You know, you had to have Keanu Reeves in that role for that role to work, I think. Like you could have had Jean-Claude Van Damme doing it, but it wouldn't have worked. It would have cheapened the whole thing, I think. Um, it kind of just worked with him in that role and then shooting it practically, that doesn't happen very often. But I feel like you hear a lot of filmmakers talking about how they want to get away from all the CG and try to go back to doing stuff. And you see some filmmakers doing that. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it is repeatable. Would speed come out on Netflix now rather than the cinema? I I, I have hope that things will slip through like speed, but um, yeah, it saddens me. I I really miss, I really miss it. I think the nineties was a golden age. I don't think at the time people really appreciated what golden age it was in terms of action movies with this and Con Air and face off and the rock and so many. Um, But I think it just comes down to the idea. Someone had a brilliant high concept idea to do it. And that's all it comes down to. And I guess you just need people to come up with great ideas. All of the, all of those movies I just named just have a one line, great concept. That's my point too about that era. It's like the elevator pitches were out of control. I mean, yeah, the air the Air Force Ones, the Rocks. Uh, you know, it's it was a period where the concept was king. And yeah, the character was important, but those concepts sold tickets, and they had to work and and be smart. And it's hard to come up with them. I mean, it's not like you can just come up with a new one every every day. So, yeah, you're right. Um, but regarding the nineties, I think you've got your sequel book on tap. You ready to, you ready to write a new one? Starting with speed. Yeah. Start with speed. The next action heroes. The next action heroes. Yeah. We found some more. There's a book in that. Yeah. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, You give me an idea. Um, There you go. go. Give me an idea. Yeah. The Nicholas Cage era. That's it. Put the money back in the box. Yeah. The book is called The Last Action Heroes, The Triumphs, Flops, and Feuds of Hollywood's Kings of Carnage by Nick DeSemlian. Uh, Please pick it up if you haven't already because it's awesome and it's just full of banger after banger. Thanks for coming on here, man, to talk about the book and to talk about speed. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you. That's Nick DeSemlian, everyone. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour, it's high time we met the passengers of bus 2525. All of them. Who the hell would have thought that when we were making this stupid movie on a bus that it would become a cultural icon? I did not like my character. I was glad she died. All she did was care about herself and why. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? The ensemble of Speed recalls the day-to-day of production and how they were bearing witness to movie history. I told Sandra, your life is now going to change. You can't do a movie with Stallone and not have a life change. Little did I know, it wasn't that movie. It was the one we were shooting that would forever change her life. But it wouldn't all be wine and roses as the script's 11th hour rewrite left a lot to be desired. Everybody just was confronted with this decision of like, 
Well, we got cast as principals, and now we're all extras. Um, what, what does that mean? What do you do? All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.